I'm so thankful that this faith isn't founded on a man. We're so imperfect. But Jesus is good all the time. Let's bow in prayer and ask for God's guidance as we look to the scriptures now and seek to hear his voice from his word. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity we've had to sing today. We thank you for the opportunity to lift our voices in praise to Jesus, to talk about his amazing grace, to sing of of the fact that he always makes a way and breaks the chains in our lives, and to sing that he saved us, and how could we ever want more than Jesus? But Father, we, we want to hear from your word today, because there are times in our lives where we feel like we may want more, and we fool ourselves, and we get duped into thinking that other things can actually compete with the goodness of Jesus. And today, Father, I, I want to have my heart corrected. I need that, and we all need that, Father. So would you open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things out of your law? Help us now as we open the scriptures so that we hear your word and be changed. We don't want to walk away from this place like a man looking in a mirror and walking away unchanged. We want to see and we want to be transformed by the power of your word and by the power of the spirit. So we look to you now. We want to hear your voice in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would turn your Bibles to John, uh, excuse me, Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. I almost said John, but I meant Joshua. Joshua 7. It's found on page 155 in the Bibles that are provided there for you in the pews. We always would desire for you to be able to see the scriptures with your own eyes. I think they'll also be posted on the screens behind me, but there's nothing like holding the scriptures in your hand. Joshua chapter 7, page 155. I failed to mention this in the first service, but I'll mention it now. Uh, we've got a t-shirt here that Pastor Larry placed on this, uh, this speaker box here. And uh, this is a reminder to us that we have a team of people that right now are on the continent of Africa and uh, Liberia sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people that need to hear it and working with one of our missionaries, Kim Smith, there. And so they're going to be returning this week, but the work's not done yet. And so con continue to pray for that team and that God would bless them in their final few days and that he'd bring them back safely. But we've been going through a series in Joshua and uh, we're going to continue that today. It's called New Territory, Same God. How many of you like team sports? Yeah? I love team sports. I mean, I, I could watch some of the individual stuff, you know, like tennis or, or golf or, <clears throat> you know, some of the skating or things like they do in the in Olympics, but I love team sports. It's great. I love the camaraderie. I love the achievement. I love the brotherhood and the sisterhood that come with the thrill of victory. I, I, I played football in high school, and I think my first year in, in that training camp in August, it's hot, and we're getting ready for the season. And I thought, there is nobody on this planet that hates me more than my coach. He's making me do things that I never dreamed I would ever seek to do because this is just awful. Why would anybody put another human being through what we're going through here at practice? But what I loved was then when we got to our first game and before that we went and took the field, he gave us that pep talk and we were just charged and ready to run through a brick wall. And I thought, this guy now has turned into our greatest cheerleader. And I love this. And the achievement of winning, the thrill of victory is awesome. But it can also be brutal. Team sports can be extremely brutal. One error in the field, one fumble or, or a missed field goal by those doggone kickers, right? <laughs> a key turnover or a missed free throw or uh, one player can cost an entire team a game or even a championship. Yes, That's the beauty and the brutality of team sports. But that could also be the beauty and brutality of, of an organization, of an institution, even a nation. One mistake, one error by one person can have an impact for the entire group. And today we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 7. And now up to this point, we've been seeing nothing but victory. Joshua chapter 1 opens up with God once again reminding Joshua and reminding the people of Israel, I've been with Moses, I've been with you out of Egypt through the wilderness for 40 years. I've done awesome things in your midst and now you're going into new territory, but be strong, be very courageous, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. 
And so us as a church, and maybe individually in your lives, we've stepped into new territory. But praise be to God, the same God that was with our ancestors is with us. We have the same God. We've seen this God carry the Israelites across the Jordan River. He stopped up the Jordan River so that they could cross over on dry ground. And the hearts of the nations, when they heard about it, that were waiting to be defeated by the Israelites, it just melted. They melted hearing about this awesome God. And last week, Pastor Larry Howard, he, he showed us how God took the Israelites and they marched around the, the, the city of Jericho. And by marching around, God brought down those walls miraculously so that the victory belonged to the Israelites and the victory ultimately belonged to the Lord. See, the victory up to this point in the story of Joshua had been overwhelming. And God's power for Joshua and Israel had been unmistakable. But the confidence at Jericho would soon turn into doubt and into despair. You see, in the midst of that great conquering victory, trouble was knocking at the door. Today, that's the title of the sermon, When Trouble Comes Knocking. We've got some notes prepared for you if you'd like to have those. The ushers would be happy to get those to you. You can just raise your hand if you'd like to get some notes to follow along. But we're going to read Joshua chapter 7. Before we do that, I'd like to take a look at Joshua chapter 6, just to kind of set the table for Joshua 7 that we're going to be looking at today. Now, this is during the battle of Jericho. They are marching around the city, and it says in, in verse 16 of Joshua chapter 6, on the seventh day and the seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout! For the, vict for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it is, are, are to be destroyed, uh, devoted to the Lord. Excuse me, let me read that again. Verse 17, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. What a merciful act by God to spare this Canaanite woman uh, from being destroyed here. And then verse 18, here's the condition though, as you take the city. But, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring, bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Amen. So the instructions are crystal clear for Israel. You're to go in and take this city. And I'm going to give you many cities in this land. And when you go into those cities, you get to have the plunder for yourselves. You're going to get rich off the land. But this first city, this first city belongs to to me. Everything of value in it is devoted either to destruction or to be brought into the treasury of the house of the Lord. The instructions are crystal clear. If you disobey this command, you will bring great trouble on the nation. So, we know the story. They take the city. All is good and victory has been brought to the city. Now let's read Joshua chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, or Achan, we call him Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. 
Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas! Sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest... They burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains there to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Accor ever since. What a change in the story. Up to this point, it's been nothing but good promises from God. Up to this point, it's been nothing but demonstrations of God's power to bring Israel into the new promised land and a continued reminder to the people that just as I was with Moses, so I am with you and with Joshua in this new territory. 
And we see in just a few verses before the opening of Joshua 7 that the walls of Jericho come tumbling down and there's great victory. Great victory. And lest we think that maybe the Israelites got a little too cocky in thinking, you know what, Ai is kind of a small city. Let's just send a few thousand people up there. They could take this city. No, they were remembering the promises of Joshua 1. They were remembering the fact that says, I will be with you if you keep my commandments. You will defeat everyone. They were doing probably the right thing going up there. But little did they know, in the midst of all the victory, that something had changed. There was trouble knocking at the door of the nation. There was trouble knocking at the door of the people. And it comes to light when they get routed, when they get defeated. And not only do they get routed, but 36 of their soldiers die in battle. You see, not one person died in the battle of Jericho, a much larger city. But we have 36 perish here. And, and the kicker here in all of this, here's what happens. They get defeated. They get killed. And then we see in verse 5, at this report, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even more than a million people, now go from rejoicing and confidence to fear and doubt, and their hearts melt. You see, their hearts weren't supposed to be melting. You see, Rahab, when she had heard about what the Israelites were doing, she said, our hearts are melting. I want to join the side of your God, Yahweh. You see, when the Israelites came across the Jordan River and the Canaanites heard about the mighty power of God, their hearts, the hearts of the enemies of Israel, their hearts were melting when they saw the power of God and Israel taking the land. But now in defeat, there's a turn of the tables. The script is flipped, and now we get the hearts of the people of Israel and their hearts are melting at this report. Let's take a look at Joshua's response in verses 6 through 9. You see, Joshua, he gets down and he tears his clothes and he's before God. He says, Alas, sovereign Lord, verse 7, why did you ever bring us into the land if we're going to get destroyed? We would have been better to stay on the other side. I don't understand what's going on, God. And we see his motivation. His motivation comes out in verse 9. What then will happen for your own great name when the Canaanites and their false gods come and defeat us who belong to the one true God? You see, Joshua, he's going back to the promise. He's saying, you just got done telling me to be strong and courageous. You just got done telling all of us to go into the land and take it because you said you would be with us. Why weren't you at I, Lord? Why weren't you there? What's going to happen to your great name? You see, Joshua had the promises, and he's getting down on his face. But in the moment, he's questioning God's guidance. Joshua questioned God's guidance. This is similar in some ways to Numbers chapter 14 and Numbers chapter 20. Two instances where the people of Israel began to grumble in their heart. Numbers 14, we heard it several weeks ago from Pastor, he preached it and he talked about the spies that went into the land and came back out and ten of those spies said the land's awesome but we can't go there. Two of them said let's go and take it and when they heard the report, the wicked report from the ten spies that outnumbered the two, they said we can't do this. And their hearts melted and they complained against God and they doubted his power. So we've got Joshua following, falling before the Lord on his face saying, Lord, what in the world is going on? Where are you? You should have never brought us over here because your name is going to be defamed and we're going to be destroyed. So we had Joshua remembering the promises. He's in a state of trouble and confusion, tempting to doubt, and he questions God's guidance. And I love the Lord's response. Let's take a look at the Lord's response, verses 10 to 15. <laughs> look at what the Lord says. Joshua, stand up. I don't know if you had a child before that's just throwing a tantrum, and you said, that's enough, stand up. You could almost imagine God saying, this, this stops now. Stand up. Why are you down on your face. And here, now, all the confusion, all of the clouds, God clears it up for Joshua. Verse 11, Israel has sinned. 
they violated or they've stepped out of the boundaries of the covenant that I've made with them. I commanded them to keep it. This is what's happened, Joshua. They've taken some of the devoted things. Remember what I told you? It's all got to be destroyed or brought into my treasury. They've stolen. Who did they steal from? The, the, the people of Jericho? No, they're stealing from God. They've stolen. They've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That's why Israel can't stand before their enemies. It's not because I've given up on you, Joshua. I didn't change at all. The reason there's trouble is because there's sin in the camp. Sin in the camp. And here's the kicker. Here's the center of the whole text. Verse 12, the last part, it says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Promise after promise after promise. God said, I'm going to be with you. Be strong. Be courageous. Right here he says, but I'm not going with you as long as there's sin in the camp. See, often we, ought, we want God's promises, but we're not willing to meet God's conditions. We think, I want His blessing. I want His love. I want the prosperity that comes with being a child of God. I want it all. But we never take the time to think, am I coming to Him with a pure heart? Am I walking in step with His commands? Am I walking in the light of the message that I have to be a follower of God and of Jesus Christ? And so God's saying, look, you want the blessing, but you're not meeting the condition. But God is telling Joshua two things. First of all, he says, I'm constantly faithful. I'm constantly, stand up. It's not because I'm faithless, I'm faithful. You see, he had given, God had given the people of Israel many promises. Even before they took the land, this should never have happened at Ai. They should have never been defeated. Back in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 3 through 8, he's given them promises before they go in the land. He says, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and ground will yield its crops, and trees will bear fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. Sounds awesome. I will grant peace in the land. And you will lie down, and no woman will make you afraid. I will remove the wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. If you... And then it says, you will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. That's a promise. I don't care if the numbers look bad. I don't care if you look like a huge underdog, Israel. You will take the land. And even if it's five of you, you're going to make a hundred of them flee because I will be with you. And so they sent a couple thousand to go attack Ai, but something happened and they were the ones that were fleeing. They were the ones that were dying. What's going on? God's saying, I keep my promises. You should have been able to take this city. It's not because I'm faithless. It's because there's other trouble in the camp. Amen. Well, not only is God constantly faithful, but the Lord also tells Joshua, I'm faithful, but I'm unwaveringly holy. I am unwaveringly holy. This word holy means he's pure. He's set apart. He's perfect. He's loved like anything else in this whole world. And he said in Leviticus 19 and 16, he said, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Because I'm holy and you're my people, you will be a pure people. So he gave them promises, but he said, I'm not going to fulfill those for you if you don't keep covenant within, with me. Isaiah 6, it's the scene of Isaiah seeing God's throne in heaven. And what do the cherubim say? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Unwaveringly holy, friends. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29, about the holiness of God, it says, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. Did you know there's an unacceptable way to worship? Let's take a look. It goes on to say, worship God acceptably. How? With reverence and awe. You don't just come flippantly in here. 
You don't just hide some sin and then think you're going to go and get victory. You must worship me acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? Verse 29 of Hebrews 12 says, For our God is a consuming fire. Don't mess with this fire, friends. You've got to treat fire respectfully. We can see the good that it can do in a fireplace. It brings warmth and health to our lives. But when it's set ablaze, it can consume an entire region. We've seen that so vividly recently in our region. But our God is a consuming fire. Don't mess with this. Don't mess with this God. He's unwaveringly holy. Israel, don't think I'm going to give you any victory if you keep violating the covenant. So the Lord's answer is very clear. Joshua, stand up. I am still faithful. I will still bring glory to my name. Here's the issue. Israel has sinned. I'm holy. And if you do not repent and remove the sin from the nation, I won't be with you any longer. Where is this coming from? Where is the sin? We see... The source of its sin. The trouble was knocking at the door of the nation because of the troubler of Israel, Achan. We see Achan here in uh, verses 16 to 25, and we see that God, uh, he has, he's, he's showing by a sign through the priests who it is. And, and we see it starts with all the 12 tribes of Israel, and then it's narrowed down to Judah. And then it's narrowed down to the clans of Judah, and one clan is chosen. And then it's narrowed down by family, and the family of Zerah is chosen. And then the family of Achan, and we see it's him. It's Achan. Now, if you're Achan, you're probably thinking to yourself, when this comes out, oh, come on, I doubt it's me. It's got to be somebody else, right? But as he gets closer and closer and closer, he's realizing, this is me. I'm the source of the trouble. See, this became Achan's legacy. We see it in Joshua chapter 22, verse 20. As Joshua is before the people of Israel, now that we're going to fast forward, he, they've already conquered all the land, and, and now he's about to die, and he says, you've got a choice to make, Israel. Are you going to live in obedience? Are you going to be like that troublemaker, that troubler Achan? This became his legacy. First Chronicles 2.7, it brings up uh, genealogies of the people of Israel. And guess who's brought up hundreds of years later in the genealogies of Israel? The troubler of Israel, Achan. One man. One man. One man brought trouble on an entire nation. Let's trace the trouble for a moment. First of all, we see that Achan was there at the Battle of Jericho. And we see him there, and he, he's, he's there, and there's all kinds of beautiful things that the people probably thought, oh, that's really nice. But remember, they're to be devoted to destruction or brought into the treasury. He saw them. He had a greedy desire for the robe, the silver, and the gold. He had a covetous heart. He wanted something so badly that didn't belong to him that he was willing to take it, even though he shouldn't. And then he takes them. He hides them under his tent. Okay, no big deal, right? Wrong. Then Israel goes to the battle of Ai with God not for them, but opposing them. Israel is defeated. 36 innocent men die. The nation is thrown into despair and doubt. His sin made the hearts of the nation melt. Friends, we're fools to think if our sin only affects us. Oh, how it affected his family. Oh, how it affected his tribe, his clans. How it affected the entire nation. And how it affected 36 other families. Fathers, brothers, husbands losing their lives. Whole families' futures ruined because of the sin of one man. Oh, we are foolish to think that we're duped when we think one sin will only hurt just me. It brings trouble to so many. Achan was the troubler of Israel. Could you imagine what it was like, though, as it's getting narrowed down closer and closer to Achan? He's probably kind of like, I, I think I got this, right? And as it gets down to him, you could probably feel the chills start to go up and down his spine and maybe the sweat start to pour down his face and you could see the terror in his eyes. It reminds me of a short story by a, the great American writer Edgar Allan Poe. He's kind of a dark writer. 
that there's the story called the Telltale Heart. I don't have time to read it all, but just to summarize, it's the dark story of a man who was haunted by what he perceived as an evil eye of an old man with whom he lived. Consumed with hatred for the glare of this evil eye, yet admittedly loving the old man, he plotted to kill the old man. After many nights staring at the man in the dark while he slept, he finally did his dastardly deed. Moments before his treachery, the young man could hear the pounding of the beating heart of the old man, almost as if the old man knew disaster was about to strike while he slept. The young man, however, in the callousness of his heart, killed the old man, dismembered him, and buried him under the floorboards of the old man's bedroom. The following morning, the police came in in response to a neighbor who had heard the shriek of the old man when he was attacked during the night. The murderer arrogantly escorted the police throughout the home, showing that everything seemed to be in order. While entertaining the police with jokes and pleasantries, while in the bedroom where the dead man was buried in the floor underneath where they sat, the murderer began to become uncomfortable. He began to hear noises that grew louder and louder. It was the beating heart of the dead old man coming from the floor. Convinced that the police could hear the pounding and believing that they were just mocking him with their calm demeanor, the young man could bear it no longer and cried out and confessed to the murder, revealing the old man there in the floor. He couldn't bear the haunting reminder of the guilt he felt as he heard the pounding of the heart beating in his mind. Our sin... We bury it deep, thinking it will have no impact in our lives. Achan buried this under his tent and thought, when we take spoils from the other cities, I'll just pull it out and say, yeah, hey, this is part of the spoils. Isn't it awesome? But as you can tell, as he gets closer and closer, and it's getting narrowed down to his family, you can get the sense, my sin and trouble is going to find me out. Trouble was knocking at the door of his tent and of his life. Oh, what disaster. Oh, what disaster sin brings into our lives, friends. We think we can bury it deep. We think that it's just a little pleasure for ourselves. It won't impact anyone. But oh, how that sin beats deep down in our hearts. We think we can bury it deep. We think that it won't bring any trouble to us or those that we love around us. It it won't have any impact on my church. They're all good people. I could just continue this little uh, pleasure on the side. It won't harm anybody. But oh, what trouble it could bring on an entire group of people. It could take us from peace to war. It could take us from unity to division. It could take us from courage to fear, from stability to disorder. Uh, It could take us from understanding to confusion, from victory to ruin. We feel the constant pounding of the trouble that sin has brought to our lives with little relief. That's what trouble means. Achan had brought trouble on the people of Israel. He had brought entanglement to them, disorder, disaster, thrown them into confusion, and he brought ruin on them. What kind of sin do you have hiding in your hearts, friends? We may not be able to see it. Now, if you'd walked through the, the camp of Israel right after the victory of Jericho, you would have seen all the tents of the families and the tribes of Israel. And you would have walked by this tent, that tent, and there would have been rejoicing, gratitude, thankfulness for God's victory. And I would imagine you could have walked through that whole place, walked by Achan's tent many times, and never noticed any difference. Everything on the surface seemed to be in order. Everything seemed to be calm. Everything seemed to be right. But there was something buried in the tent of Achan. How many of us do we come before those that we know? Do we even come into this place and we walk by each other and we may think to ourselves, everything's fine, the tent looks good on the outside, but deep down, we have sin and trouble buried down deep in our lives. The sin of Achan, the troubler of Israel. 
Well, the source of the trouble, we, we, we can look at it and we may think to ourselves at first glance, well, the source of the trouble, obviously, is the gold and the silver and the robe that are buried under his tent. But the text doesn't say that. The, the source of the trouble starts before that. Again, look at Joshua 7, 21. He says, Achan says when he's confessing, I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Here's the source. I coveted them. I coveted them and I took them. You see, the source of the trouble for Achan and for Israel was not merely some things that were stolen. The issue began with a sinful desire. The source of the trouble, you see, are the unseen desires of the heart. James, the brother of Jesus, he explains that in James 1, 13 to 15. He's talking about temptation and being under trial. And he says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, meaning he's giving me more than I can handle. No, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. In other words, the trouble comes from the evil desires of our hearts. That's where it began for Achan. An evil desire. A desire that God wanted to meet. He said, I'm going to give you a lot of riches and a lot of prosperity, but this belongs to me. And Achan said, no, I want that. I don't care what you say. I want that an evil desire. Jesus, he says in Mark 7, 20 to 23, and he's talking with Pharisees about where sin comes from. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. Mark 7, 20, 21, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. What a list of sins, but Jesus is saying, it all starts here. All these evils come from inside, then what, then what comes out, and that's where the defilement comes from, from inside. Walking through the camp, no one could see what was under Achan's tent, and they couldn't see as they probably walked by him what was in his heart. On the outside, everything looked to be clean and in order. The Pharisees during Jesus' life, teachers of the law, not all of them, but many of them had the heart of Achan. He criticized them, Jesus did, in Matthew 23, 27 to 28. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are two-faced. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Achan had it all going on on the outside, but deep down on the inside, his life was a mess, and it brought trouble on a whole nation. Friends, today, what sins do you have in your heart? What sins do you have buried deep down inside? Maybe it's the kind of pride that says, I'm better than others, and it comes out in a little bit of gossip here and there. Maybe it's the kind of sin of unbelief, thinking that I can only satisfy my own desires, so we, we chase after all kinds of things, greed, or, or maybe lust, which can turn into sexual immorality. But we've been hiding that. We've been dabbling in a little bit of pornography here or there or a little bit of immorality here or there and we hide it deep down thinking no one will ever know. I can put on a show and it certainly won't impact anyone else. The deep desires of the heart. Maybe it's a self-righteous attitude. Maybe it comes across in the way to say you look down on people and you're quick to judge people, but you're blind to your own sin. Why? Because you're too proud to admit the sinful desires of your heart. Like Achan, we could have our tents all in line and have sin buried underneath. It brings trouble. 
it brings great trouble. Maybe today you've never dealt with the deep sin in your heart and it's bringing you all kinds of trouble. God's promised you peace, but you're full of anxiety. God's promised you courage, but you feel fear. God promised you uh, a forgiveness, but you feel guilty. He's promised you honor, but all you feel is shame. And you don't know how to get rid of it and you feel the trouble in your heart and in your life and your relationships are starting to experience the death of it all. God is saying, you got sin in the tent. You got sin in your heart and in the camp. Well, we've seen Achan. Let's move to one final thing. Let's take a look at the Valley of Achor, verse 26. Now, the, ver the word Achor, trouble, uh, it, it means trouble. It's a place that would always be a reminder of God's wrath towards sin. Let's look at verse 26 in Joshua 7 one more time. It says, Over Achan, they, being all Israel and, and, and Joshua, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. The trouble that Achan brought to Israel is now being piled on top of Achan himself. You see, the stones there in that valley, whenever an Israelite would pass by, they would remember, do not sin against this holy God. It could bring great trouble to my life and to the whole nation. Just a few chapters before, they set up stones when they traveled across the Jordan River and there was all this victory and God said, I want you to set up stones as a monument that you would remember my promises and my power and my, my blessing upon you. And now we've got a whole different set of stones a little ways away in this valley of trouble, this destination that goes down with no escape and it just goes down and down and down and we see the judgment of God and the anger of God that had to be removed because of the sin of one man. Akor would always be a reminder of the sin, the sin in the camp. And God's wrath, God's fierce anger for this sin was finally removed from Israel when they removed the sin from the nation. Akor was a constant reminder that sin always brings trouble. Unfortunately, this reminder would never change the wicked hearts of the generations that follow. Even a vivid reminder could not change a heart. Here's the point of the whole message of Joshua 7. Hidden sin replaces God's blessing with trouble. Amen. Hidden sin replaces God's blessing with trouble. We know this to be true from our Christian scriptures in the New Testament. It says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. It brings God's wrath on us, his anger. We're full of guilt, we're full of shame, and we're full of fear. Even for us as believers, oh yeah, I've been washed of sin and I'm going to heaven, but today I even experience possibly the loving discipline of God's hand that allows us to see the trouble that comes from sin. So no matter who you are here today, Trouble can come because of sin, rather through judgment or even through discipline. Both are painful, friends. Amen. Maybe you know here today the discipline of the Lord. It brings trouble. It is painful. Just as one man, Achan, brought the entire nation into trouble because of sin, so all of humanity, friends, all of humanity, you and me, we've been plunged into trouble because of the sin of the first man, Adam. He sinned and through that he's plunged all of humanity in this trouble that we experience every day. But not only that, we've brought ruin on our own lives and others because of our own sinful desires and behaviors. The whole race, just like Achan we are all under God's wrath and judgment because of our sin. It has brought us so much trouble. And today, maybe you came through these doors, you've sung the songs, you've shaken the hands, and you've smiled real nicely trying to make everything look great on the outside. But on the inside, deep in your tent, there is so much trouble. What a dark reminder. What a dark story in the middle of such a victorious book. However, but God, in His mercy, 
He does something to the valley of Accor. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. I nearly leaped out of my chair when I saw this this week. You see, the book of Hosea, it's a prophecy many years later because the people of Israel continued to sin, violate the covenant, and brought trouble on themselves. Judgment, exile, punishment, it was awful. And God is comparing the wicked, adulterous nation of Israel to a bride that Hosea had married. She was unfaithful to him. And he said, just as this wife has been unfaithful to you, so Israel has been unfaithful to me. And they deserve judgment. They deserve the valley of Accor. They deserve trouble. But listen to the promises of God and his mercy. Hosea 2, 14 to 15 says, Therefore I'm now going to allure her, meaning Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give back her vineyards and I will make the valley of Accor the valley of trouble, I will make it a door of hope. What is a destination that leads only down under a, under a pile of God's wrath? God is promising the Israelites in Hosea, because of my mercy, I'm going to make a new promise to you, a new covenant, that I'm going to turn that valley of trouble into a door of hope. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. How is this wrath then removed? This is how it's removed, friends. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God. We only brought trouble on ourselves, but that he loved us and sent his son as the appeasement of the wrath and fierce anger of God for our sins. You see, this covenant that God made in Hosea, he knew that the people could not change their hearts, so he said, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to make a new promise for you, and this promise isn't going to be based on the condition of your obedience. It's going to be based on my mercy. I'm going to turn this valley, this reminder that every time you sin, it only brings trouble to you. I'm going to go in there in this destination of fierce anger and wrath that is inescapable. I'm going to turn it into an escape route. I'm going to turn it into a door of hope. And just like it required the death of Achan, one man to remove the wrath of God from a nation, our Savior, Jesus Christ, steps into the valley of trouble for us and he says, not one drop of wrath will go to you because God looks down and says, my anger is removed from your life. The trouble is gone when you walk through the door of hope. This is our good news, friends. This is good news for sinners that have been hiding sin in their tents for so long. You may have come here today saying, how can I ever let anybody know what's been happening? How can I bring up the past? How can I bring up the sin, the guilt, the fear, the shame that I feel and I've tried to bury deep, deep down in my tent? I don't want anybody to know about it. God says, if you do that, you'll remain in the valley of trouble, but I've provided a door of hope to you today through Jesus Christ, through what he's done. This is our covenant, friends. This is our covenant. We're going to new territory. We've got the same God. And no matter what sin you've gone through today, you don't have to go to the valley of trouble because God has provided a door of hope. Today, God wants to give every single one of us who are in a valley of trouble an opportunity to walk through the door of hope, to get out of that dark valley. The only condition, he says in 1 John 1, 9, it's beautiful, what a promise to us. If we confess, we agree with God, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Friend, you can never, ever hide your sin from God. He already sees it. He already sees it. But you may have found yourself in a valley of trouble for days, for weeks, for months, maybe even years. But today, God can give you hope. 
just come and confess. We're going to close our, our service today with a time of prayer. Now, we didn't have our normal intercessory prayer down here like we usually do, where we ask people to come forward and we've got counselors to pray, because I thought, you know what, it would be appropriate to give an opportunity for any of us here today. If there's any sin in the camp today, if you're hiding a bar of gold in your tent, you've coveted with your desires, come to the altar today. You won't find an altar where God will judge you, but we're going to sing it. Come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Come to the door of hope. Whether you've never trusted in Jesus or you've been trying to walk with Him for years, if you've got trouble in your tent today and you need to confess it before the Lord, we're going to invite you. You could pray with a counselor. Counselors, come on forward if you're still here. You could come and just kneel by the steps. You don't have to tell everybody all the dirty details. Just make it right before God. If you have to sit or kneel right where you are, do it. But let's get right before God. Today is the day of salvation. Psalm 139, 23 to 24 says this. The psalmist says, search me, God. Search me. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me to the way of eternal life. Let's take a few moments right now. We're going to sing this song, and I want to invite you. Come, get clean. Get out of the valley of trouble. Don't leave today back to that valley. Come through the door of hope today. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this door of hope. Oh, what a trouble we've been in because of our sin. What a trouble came upon Achan. Oh, I thank you, Father, that, that years later that reminder of sin was removed when you brought a door of hope. We have a Savior who has stepped in and taken all the punishment that we deserved. And he's appeased your anger for our sins so that now that valley is a door. Father, I pray that you'd equip us today as we go now and as we're commissioned to go and speak this good news message with people that are in trouble, people that need to hear about the door of hope. And I pray today, Father, anybody that still needs to get right with you, please, Father, please, according to your mercy, do a work in their hearts that they may come and enter through the door of hope. We love your son. Thank you so much for the gift that you've given. In Jesus' name, amen. Your commission, go share the good news.